0: Genesis one and two again. We're going to wrap up those chapters this morning by looking at a very specific topic. Um, I don't know how many of you would admit it or are familiar with the Canadian rock group Loverboy from the early eighties. Anybody want to acknowledge it? Okay, oh, we got more bold people here this morning. Good. Uh, first hour there were only two, and they were kind of sheepish. And then the second hour, a few more, and so you guys had the had the most. So. The Canadian rock group Loverboy, how is this going to tie into a message? I don't know. If we're going to work it out. They wrote a very popular hit song in 1981 that was entitled Working for the Weekend. Now, sadly, because of copyright laws, I'm not able to sing the song since we post this online. Sorry, I know you would want me to. But I can quote for you, the refrain of the song, which many of you probably know, here it is, everybody's working for the weekend. Are we familiar with that? Now you know the group, now you know that. Yeah, like that's been a very popular refrain ever since they sang it back in 1980, 81. The fact of the matter is, statistically speaking, this is actually a true statement. Um, statistically speaking, we find that a lot of people are looking forward to the weekend. In fact, they want the weekend to continue because do you know which day uh, most people take as a sick day? What's, what's the day that most people take as a sick day? It's Monday. It's Monday. Monday's a day that in the developed world, when they look at it statistically, that's the day that people take as a sick day, except for Australia, which Weirdly enough, it's Tuesday, and they don't know why that's the case. They're upside down, so that explains it, right? They're on the other side. But people are looking forward to the weekend. It seems like work is not something a lot of people want to jump right back into. In fact, Monster.com, they did a survey, and 76% of the respondents responded that they have really bad Sunday night blues, which makes sense why so many people take Monday as a sick day. They're not ready to go back to work. One person had said in analysis of the statistics, the level of anxiety Americans feel heading into the work week remains significantly significantly high and is counterproductive. Um, Which is crazy because, again, we know that if you work on average, like a normal work week for most of your life, you spend one-third of your life working. Yet people are are not necessarily contented in their their work. 90,000 hours. Don't think about that too much, okay? Um, A funny statistic says that the average office worker spends 50 minutes a day searching for lost files or missing items. (laughs) So, so, not only do we work a lot, there are things that are frustrating about our work. And, and so how should we view our work? That's really what we're going to look at today. How should we view our work? How should we think about work? Something that it seems like a lot of people struggle with. There was a CEO uh, named Eugene O'Kelly. He was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And at 53, he received that diagnosis. He knew that he wouldn't survive, and, and so he took the time to write a book called Chasing Daylight, and he wrote it as a guidebook on how to die, and he reflected in the final months of his life on his previous occupation, and here's what he wrote, thinking about work. What if I hadn't worked so hard, he wrote. What if, aside from doing my job and doing it well, I had actually used the bully pulpit of my position to be a role model for balance? Had I done so intentionally, who's to say that besides having more time with my family, I wouldn't also have been even more focused at work, more creative, more productive? What's O'Kelly saying in this statement? He's saying, I don't know that I looked at my work the right way. Now I'm at the end of my life, I'm about to die, and I'm wondering, did I I handle it right? Did I I do it right? I think this is something that a lot of us struggle with. And fortunately for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can actually look to the Word of God, and specifically Genesis 1 and 2, for some guidance on this, about how we should think about our our work. In fact, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things we discover is, first and foremost, the origin of work, the origin of work. Where, Where does work come from? Why is it that we ultimately work? A lot of people think that work is a necessary evil. And and so how do we think about our work? Where where does our work originate? Well, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, right out of the gate, you discover that our God is a God who works. Our God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is a God who works. He is creating the world in the very beginning. He is speaking, let it be, and it was. He is making the earth and and then filling it. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, this is important to look at. It talks about our God working and says, And on the seventh day, God finished his what? Work. Work. That he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, what's so striking about this is that the word that is used there for work describing what our God had done, is the same Hebrew word that is used for humanity when we work. Why is that important? Because it's telling us that the work that God is doing is not some supernatural, special, sanctified kind of work that's different from the work that we are engaging in. It's saying, our God works. Now, we're going to see in just a minute, like, our God works, and so therefore, for we work, but... But Genesis 1 and 2 is saying you want to know where work comes from. It's not like work just appeared on the scene willy-nilly. Like, God is a God who works. And then in Genesis 2.15, we discover that when God creates man, after he creates him, we've seen this verse already. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He creates man, and right out of the gate, he ordains work for humanity. God ordained work for humanity. Just, just right after he's created, God says, Now I'm ordaining you, I'm calling you to work, to cultivate, and to keep this world that I have made. I make these two points from Genesis 1 and 2 because I want us to understand this work, it is not a curse. Work is not a curse. In our culture today, people sometimes view work as a necessary evil. It's, it's not a curse. It is what our God does. He's a working God. He makes us and then he ordains for us to to work. This is the origin of work. It existed from the beginning. Now, this would fly in the face. This idea would fly in the face of what many religions and philosophers believed in, especially the Greeks. They, they were huge on this. Plato was kind of the first one to say this. Aristotle took this and ran with this some more. Y- you take the Greek thought, which says that the material world, the the, the material world, the flesh and and the dirt and the bra- bricks and the rocks and the stone, like the material world, it's something to, to ultimately free yourself from. That, that the things that mean the most, the things that are the, the most important are, are the immaterial. The material is something that weighs you down. You you want to become transcendent in in a way. And so so the Greeks believed that ultimately work was something that was created by the gods as something that we eventually free ourselves from. And yet when we come here to the creation story, we see God saying, no, no work's not a bad thing. Work isn't something that You're to free yourself from, I ordained for you to work. It's part of what it means to be be human. In fact, that drives us now to the purpose of work. It's one thing to know that, that work, it comes from our God, that's the origin of it, and that he ordains us to work. It's something else to understand the purpose of work. Why is it that we, that we work? If you were to ask people today why it is that they work, I think that you'll find some of these kind of common answers. I mean, if you were to speak to a young person and say, what's the purpose of, of your work? I think most people would say, well, number one, to provide for our families. Like I work in order to make money, in order to provide for myself or for my my family. People will say, I work to have some security. Others, if they're really honest, say, listen, I work because I want to get rich. I want to have power. I want to have influence. Others say that they work to find fulfillment or to have purpose to have meaning in their life one study recently was done of the millennial generation so that's those about 34, 35 and younger and they asked them like what are the common identities what are the things that you strive to find in a job what, what are you looking for in, in a job and here's, here's what came away with I thought this was really interesting Number one, they said um, they're looking for jobs that make a lot of money. Jobs that make a lot of of money because they want financial security and they want the freedom to do those things that they would enjoy doing. And so they they talk about um, looking for, like, high-level banking. Like, that's what they strive for. But then they come and they say, but you know what? If I can't make a lot of money, then millennials say, the next best thing that I would want is to ultimately have a job that, that changes the world. I, I, want, I want to work for non So if I can't make a lot of money, I don't care if I don't make a lot of money, but I want to impact people's lives. I want to see lives changed. I want to know that what I'm doing has purpose and has meaning. That's really interesting, isn't it? I'll give up money as long as my job has high impact in changing the world. Which leads to the third thing. He said, if I can't have either of those two things, then the third thing that I'd want is for my job to gain me some status. And so they pursue jobs that, are, that demonstrate them to be innovative thinkers. That's why they, they run to startups. That's why they, the Silicon Valley types. There's this idea that if I can't make money and I can't have a job that really impacts lives, then I want a job that, that at least has some form of status, that, that when people look at me, that they see that I'm a creative type or, or that I'm an inventive type of person or, or innovative. The idea behind all three, these things is that my job or the purpose of my job is ultimately what it does for who? Me. Now, I don't think that that's just millennials who think that way. <laughs> I think we all find ourselves in, in, that, in that space. We, we deeply want these jobs where we, we find purpose in them. But what does the Bible say? What is ultimately the purpose of our work? What I'm about to say here is significant because many times, if we if we don't understand the purpose behind our work, then we'll be we'll be dissatisfied with what our work does for us. People often want to say, "I love my job." They they want to have a feeling that their job has meaning and it has purpose. And I come to tell you today that without Eva ever having a specific type of job, you can have a job, you can have work that you're engaged in that ultimately does have purpose because here's the purpose of work. At the end of the day, the work that you do, whatever work you engage in, here's the purpose of it. Through our work, we reflect the image of God. Work has been ordained by God for you and for me because through our work, we reflect the image of God. That's that's what our work is ultimately to to be about, is making God known, reflecting his character, reflecting his, his nature in what we engage in. In the ancient world, rulers would conquer kingdoms. They would conquer cities. They would conquer a province. And what would happen is this. After an ancient king would conquer a place, we find evidence of this all throughout the ancient world. They would take and they would form a statue, and they would place it there in that city that they had just conquered, and they would leave that statue there after they left, and they would leave that statue there for what purpose, you think, to let the people know this place belongs to that king. And do you know what the name was for those statues that they would leave in the ancient world? Image bearers. (laughs) Image bearers. And, and what we find in Genesis chapter one is it says that God made us in his image and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. See, humanity being made in the image of God is that we were to serve as the Wherever we were, we reflected the king that we served. That every part of creation where people are working and people are living, we're saying this belongs to, to the God, the maker of heaven and earth. So when you work and when I work, when we reflect the nature, our God is a working God. He started a work, and you and I being made in his image, we now have this commission to continue on the work. That's why he says, cultivate and keep. Keep filling the earth and working, reflecting God's image. And the beautiful thing is, there's not one job Not one job that does this perfectly, but that all the work that we engage in has an opportunity for us to reflect his image. You see, we are not at our best as human beings when we're consuming things. We weren't made to just purely consume. You and I were made to work because being made in the image of God, a God who works, you and I are called to work, and we can reflect his character and his nature in so many different ways. Some people feel like, all right, if you're a doctor, now, now that's, that's a good calling. Like, as a doctor, you can really reflect the image of God better than the guy who's in the field picking fruit. But the truth is, as I want to show you in just a minute, many different. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say every legitimate and moral work, legitimate and moral, what do I mean by that? Like, as long as your work doesn't involve stealing and killing people, Okay. <laughs> Every legitimate moral work from the doctor to the person in the field to the stay-at-home mom to the teacher to the bureaucrat to the police officer to the sanitation worker, all of those jobs, all of that work, within them there's an opportunity to reflect God's image. In fact, if you don't believe me to that, that to be true, I would like you to consider this quote by Philip Jensen. It's very profound, actually. Philip Jensen said this, If God came into the world, what would he be like? Now, just think about that for a moment. God came into the world. Now, he did, didn't he? Jesus Christ, the perfect man. Living in a fallen world, Jesus Christ came into our world, right? God became flesh and he dwelt among us. So Philip Jensen says, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a what? Carpenter. Isn't that a fascinating thing to consider? What was the work that he engaged in? For the first part of his life, before he began his earthly ministry, he was engaged as a carpenter. And there was this moment in Jesus' life when he transitioned from the work of a carpenter to beginning to be a rabbi and to teach, where he was baptized. And then at that moment, the father spoke these words over his son. This is my son in whom I am what? Well pleased. And up to that point in his life, what had he been engaged in? carpentry. Do do you see how you can bear the image of God, fulfill the purpose of work? It's it's not about being just one thing and doing that well. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, was a carpenter, and yet he was the fullest human being who ever lived, and he bore the image of God faithfully as a carpenter. Now, if you work with wood, you're like, oh, yeah, that's me. I got that. <laughs> All right, you know. But here's, but here's what, there's this author by the name of Robert Banks, and he says, I want to give you, give you a, a number of ways to think about work, categories of the way that God works that then demonstrates how you and I can reflect his image in different types of work. First off, our God is engaged in redemptive work, redemptive work. God's saving and reconciling actions. Our God works in these ways. And guess what? When you are somebody who's engaged as an evangelist, a a pastor, a counselor, a peacemaker, when you're engaged in in pointing people to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, you're, you're in redemptive work. But somebody who's an actor, a poet, a musician, a songwriter, they can be engaged in redemptive work when they're writing songs, producing plays that ultimately point to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So you can do these things and be engaged in redemptive work. Now, this is the easy one. And you say, of course, somebody who's doing this, yes, God's a redeeming God, and so that's redemptive work. But it's not just in redemptive work, creative work. Our God is a creative God, fashioning the physical world, the human world. Our God is creative. Just look at the variety of things. I mean, just one of the things that blows my mind is like, why does he allow us to see in color? He didn't have to do that. But but we can see in color. Why doesn't all food taste the same? Like, why give that variety? Because he's a creative God, and, and we get to use our creativity in so many ways. Artists, sculptors, actors, musicians, poets, creative people, but interior designers, metal workers, potters, carpenters, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, even urban planners. Like, a golf course Architect is using the creativity. And when you use your creativity, you're imaging God in your work. You have providential work. Our God is a God who provides for and sustains human life. I don't think many people recognize how many of them are engaged in providential work and how if you're doing things that enable people to live and to flourish, the sanitation worker that takes the trash out so that it doesn't gather up, so that disease doesn't come into a certain location, but disposes of those things. That person is engaged in providential work. The person who is picking fruit in the field, who thinks to themselves, you know what, the person who really matters is the person who owns the field. But think about this, when you pick the fruit and then it's sold in the store, you're doing a task that ultimately It's for somebody else so that they would buy that fruit and have the food that they would need in order to live. Like from big ways and small ways, people are engaged in providential work. Shipbuilders, people who build ships. Think about that, who ship goods from one place to another. If you're a UPS worker, it's not just the farmers who are engaged in this. If you're an IT worker, you're providing the technology that is being used ultimately by the researcher who's able to deal with the diseases. Do you see how it's connected? There's providential work that we can do. There's justice work. Judges, lawyers, paralegals, government regulators. Things sometimes that we don't necessarily... Like, where we think like, oh man, you know, they're just, it's so litigious. But in, but in one way, too, some of the laws and the enforcement of those laws, are police officers who do these things, they're engaged in justice work. Justice work isn't purely working for, for orphans and for sex traffickers and those, those kind of things. Like, justice work has a wide range of things. When I'm engaged in lawmaking so that ultimately human beings can be protected in any way, shape, or form, that's imaging God. There's compassionate work. Doctors, nurses, psychologists, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, community workers. There's compassionate work. Our God is compassionate. Did you, do you see how when we make this statement, what's the purpose of work? It's to reflect the image of God. Rather than coming and saying, I can only do a job that I really love. You and I get to come in to say, when we understand that the purpose of our work is to bear his image wherever God has us, there are so many different ways in which we can manifest this and live this out. It's why you can look at a stay-at-home mom who says, you know what, I don't make any money, but you are engaged in work. In fact, I think a stay-at-home mom, she does all of these things right, (laughs) right here. All of these things are involved. I think a retired person who is now taking care of an elderly parent, is engaged in work that reflects the image of God, part of providential care. You might be retired. You might be able to say, I, there's not much work I can do. But if you, if you are ministering to a, to a neighbor, you're engaged in compassionate work. I think sometimes we overthink our work and we think that work only done in this way Going back to that mindset that says, I either need to make a lot of money for my work to matter, I either need to change the world for my work to matter, or I need a work that gives me status for my work to matter. God says, Your work matters when it reflects my image. And there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different jobs, a lot of different work that enables you to do that. I think that's awesome. It frees us up. It frees us up to then say, This is what it's about bearing His image. So no sooner do I say all of that, though, than we have to come in and address something in the room today. We can understand the origin of our work. We can understand the purpose of our work. But we got to talk about the problem of our work, the problem with work. Because if we're straightforward, you might hear me say, okay, great. So whatever work I'm doing, I can reflect the image of God. But work is still hard at times, and sometimes it's not fun at all. And I say, you know what? The Bible's got an answer for that as well. Genesis chapter three gives us that answer. After Adam and Eve disobey God, and we're gonna look at this in more fullness. After they disobey God, God comes and he speaks to the man in Genesis chapter three, verse 17. And he says to Adam, Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles. I love that. It's like thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Whew, ouch. You want to know why work is difficult? You see, here's the problem with work. Work has been affected by the fall. And when I talk about the fall, I'm talking about the sin of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity entered into the fallen state. And the fallen state impacted relationships, not just with one another, but with God, and it's impacted our work. And this text tells us that a couple of things have happened now to work because of our sin. The first is this, work now involves struggle and toil. Why isn't all work a joy? Why do we struggle and toil? And I'm not just talking about weeds. I'm not just talking about trying to to cultivate things and to see them not decay. Now there's decay. Now there's there's disease. Now there's things that affect the production of the things that we're trying to cultivate. But the toil and the struggle isn't just on the physical level, it's on a relational level. How many of you have been in a workplace? In fact, I I saw this statistic. They, They said, what is the greater problem for you a stress, that your workload or your coworkers? 51 percent said coworkers, 49 percent said the workload. There's a struggle that exists between people. There's conflicts that exist in the workplace because of the fall. The toil and the struggle isn't just thorns and thistles, it's relationships. And so, and so the author of "Ecclesiastes" gave us this, this little sunbeam to consider. Look at this. This is Ecclesiastes 2:17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. There's a bit of sunshine for your day, right? (laughs) He says, I'm feeling the effect of the fall. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says these words, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Toil and struggle. They now exist in our world and in our work because of of sin. We have a problem with work. It's been affected by the fall. And not only does our work involve toil and struggle, work can also become an idol for us. Probably even worse than the toil and struggle, the sweat on our brow that comes from work, we turn this good thing, work, this thing in which you and I are supposed to reflect the image of God, We now take it and we make it an idol. What do I mean by that? We take work and we elevate our work to doing for us the things that only God was supposed to be and do for us. We look at work for our ultimate security. We look for work for our ultimate identity. We look at our work for our meaning and purpose in life. See, we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. That's the tendency of the human heart. God said, I made you and you are to work, but you are not to use your work in order to validate who you are. Work wasn't intended to accomplish that purpose. Work was intended so that you might reflect who I am. And yet we make much of our work. And we become in bondage to it then. We overwork ourselves because we're looking for our work to do what only God can do for for us. It looks different for different people. But work is a toil and work is struggle because of the fall, and it also becomes an idol. And yet, in the midst of this, I, I want to I close our time by, by saying there, there is a way that we, can, that we can kind of right the ship. There's a way in which you and I can fulfill the purpose of our work, reflecting the image of God, and, and to engage in our work in a right way. And it, and it boils down to this, the need for rest. The need for rest. After the fall of Adam and Eve, when when God would eventually give his law to the people of God to say, this is how you're to function in the world, one of the things that he would establish for the people of God is known as the Sabbath. Are you familiar with the Sabbath? Do you you know what this is? It's actually what's happening right now. Sunday for us is the Sabbath day, a day of what? Rest. Now, why did God do it? Why why did he do it? I think that we can say a couple of things. First off, when you look at deuteronomy and when you get exodus when god gives his law and says you're to remember the sabbath day and keep it holy when he's talking about resting on that day one of the things that he is specifically commanding his people to do is to not engage for a season in one's regular physical regular physical or mental responsibilities god god comes i want you to take a day of rest once every seven days to follow a pattern that I set up, you shall work six days and on the seventh you shall rest. You shall stop what you normally do and you'll rest on the seventh day. Now, why does he have the people do that? Well, first and foremost, there is a physical component of it. The human body, the mental exertion that it takes to work, we can't work forever. We, we have a, a threshold. We need rest. We can't go on working In working, I can't remember if I had mentioned this here or if it was maybe in the going deeper, but did you know that the Communist Party in Russia, uh, a number of years ago, they tried to recreate the work week, and they established a 10-day work week. And they tried to implement it, and guess what? Do you think it worked out? No, they converted back to a seven-day work because they found that, guess what? God knows what he's talking about. He knows the cycle that we need just physically. We need time of rest, it is ultimately good for us. But that's not the only reason why he established it. By taking every seventh day as a day of rest, what the human is doing is coming and saying, I am guarding my heart against utilizing work and looking to work to do for me what only God can do. You see, by resting on the seventh day, when you look at the reasoning behind it, God is saying, listen, I am the one who is sovereign over all. In fact, when God says, listen, I worked six days and then I rested on the seventh, was God tired after he was done creating the world? Was, was he tired? No, he wasn't, he wasn't tired. I, I've used this illustration in the past. I think it captures it really, really well. If you worked for a year building a boat, you worked on it, you fashioned the boat, you, you made it, and you got all done. Would you take that boat and then just plop it in your front yard to just sit back and rest and just look at the boat? No, what are you going to do with the boat? You're going to put it in the water, right? You're resting from the work of building the boat, but now you're going to enjoy what you have created. When, when, when it says that God rested on the seventh day, he wasn't tired and he was like, I, I can't handle this anymore. He was establishing his reign and his... He was was governing over all of his creation because it was good. He was sovereign over all. And what ultimately we're doing when we rest on the seventh day is we are looking to God's sovereignty and we're trusting in his sufficiency. That's what we're proclaiming to our hearts and minds. We're saying work isn't where our ultimate security is found work is not what the thing that's going to provide all that we need our god does that for us and so by putting a break on it one day out of seven we're saying listen by our work we're just reflecting your image but we're not looking to our work to exercise our control over all things because only you God are in control of all things. I can take a day off from my work knowing that the world will still spin and you're still in control. I can take a day off from my work because I'm going to trust in your sufficiency to ultimately give me what what I need. That's not the mindset that I think we have, is it? That's not natural to us. I must keep working. I must keep pushing forward because if I don't, everything's going to come apart at the seams. I must keep working. I must keep pressing forward because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to provide. God says, I'm the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the one who fills up your barns or doesn't. I'm the one who causes the sun to rise and to set. And so resting on the seventh day is proclaiming to our hearts, God, you're in control. God, you are sufficient. And if that not enough, we discover in the New Testament that God also established the seventh day to do one more thing. One more thing that would demonstrate his ultimate sovereignty and sufficiency. You see, because humanity believes deep down in our hearts that when we hear the law of God, if we just work hard enough, if we just obey the things that God commands of us, we'll be able to do the work necessary to redeem ourselves. We'll be able to do the work necessary to earn God's favor and to earn God's love. But the truth of the matter is, we can't. Our works will never be sufficient enough to make right what we made wrong through our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Right? All of our good deeds are as filthy rags. Which is why God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to do the work ultimately, notice that word, the work that we could not do, to obey the law of God perfectly. It's why Jesus would say, listen to these words. This is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by My father. And no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Stop working. Stop working for your salvation. Stop working to try and earn God's favor. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. What is counterintuitive is that in our humanity and in our world, it says you must work, 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 work. You need your work to validate yourself. You need your work. And God says, the one work that you most desperately need to do, you can't do, and yet Jesus Christ has done it for you. If we can get this, If we truly believe that Jesus Christ worked on our behalf, and it's through his his work that we are saved, what we're doing is we're trusting in God's sovereignty and his sufficiency. And then what God comes and says, if you believe in my sovereignty and my sufficiency in your salvation, then as you work, as you live in this world, you should pattern that same type of rest by building in those times for your heart and mind where you come and remind yourself that I am still in control, And that I will be sufficient to meet your needs. Because work will never be able to do it for you. Only I can. And that's why I close by saying this. Embracing work as God designed it. Understanding that the purpose of it is to reflect his image. And embracing the need for rest. Embracing the truth that he is sovereign and that he is sufficient. Well, this will ultimately lead you and I to work to God's glory. The only way that we can work to his glory is when we understand his design and understand that our work does not earn or merit his favor. That our work does not provide for us ultimate security. Those things only come from God. Once you understand that, it frees you up to do your work to his glory. May you help us with that. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the father who provides for your children. The tendency of my human heart, I know, is to, well to believe that I'm capable of doing that in my own strength. Lord, help us to hear and to receive your word by your spirit's power today, to have a right outlook on our work, to truly believe that what might seem like a menial task to us, a a insignificant type of work, can ultimately be a work in which we're reflecting your, your image. And then, Lord, may we be a people who are intentional and take seriously this truth to rest to rest first and foremost in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and then to keep on living in that rest, Lord, where we trust your sovereignty and your sufficiency for all other things in our lives. So to you be the glory both now and forevermore through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.